hello everyone. Welcome back to another Monday edition of the Ivory Road podcast. Once again, we're lucky enough to have both Paco and Enric back with us to for the discussion. Enric, how are you doing? Hey, I'm good, thanks. Very good to see you. Paco, how's Italy? Yeah, everything good in Italy. Um, all happy about the Draghi government. Not sure, but uh, we are here. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's get into it. So. We're going to start the discussion this week about a topic that's been all over the news in Spain and probably all over the news in Europe as well, I'm sure. Um, it's about a case of a, an artist, a rapper called Pablo Assel. And Enric, would you like to give us a bit of the background about Pablo Assel, what the story is, what his conviction is, and why it's such a, an important topic at the moment? Um, so yeah, Pablo Hassel is, uh, as you said, uh, as a rapper who whose uh, lyrics are very controversial and they've been for many years now since he's been uh, kind of famous out in the scenes. Um, now the big issue has come um, and more into political relevance when he was convicted for the content of his lyrics and then this whole debate on the freedom of expression and the limits of artistic creation have been put on the ground and and it's been a big topic of debate so um that's something that that uh, parties have different visions on um but one of the most controversial topics obviously is regards to the respect for the crown and the institution and the king and queen themselves and whether um more or less tasteful lyrics can be can be written on them or whether you, you can freely joke on them or not so so that's uh, that's been controversial because um because politicians have mixed up two different things one of them is like whether any artist should be allowed to uh, whether any artist should be allowed to produce anything in freedom and produce any lyrics any content in freedom uh, without having to limit their content but the other thing is, um, should we defend this as a fundamental right, regardless of whether we agree or not with the opinions? I don't particularly like his music. I don't particularly like what he says or how he says it, rather. Uh, but I think he should be allowed to say it. And I think that's the fundamental thing um, and th something that's uh, threatened these days by the, this kind of sentences. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's. I mean, we've had similar cases like this before in Spain. It seems to crop up every couple of years. How have they tended to go, historically speaking, Enric? Like, do, do these rappers and other artists, and this has branched out into sport and everything, you know, where the national anthem was booed and Barcelona and Athletic Bilbao were fined. All of these instances, what, what is usually the outcome? Does the freedom of expression tend to win in the end or the respect for the Spanish monarchy has to come first? Well, there's always this is always kind of a pendular movement. So you tend to have some governments that try and push repression through. I mean, maybe repression is a bit of a strong word, but but I do believe that there there are some signs of of authoritarian politics that are trying to limit freedom of expression in terms of certain topics. Crown is a, a very clear case, but you've got other other aspects. For example, as you were as you were naming, like when a crowd of people decided to freely boo at the Spanish national anthem. I mean, instead of uh, trying to suppress that and instead of trying to eliminate those opinions, um, 
politicians should be asking why that's the case and why there are a number of people in such big numbers supporting those ideas. And instead of trying to tackle political issues, um, the, the tendency has been trying to suppress the the public, uh, the, the public presence of, of these opinions. So, um, as I say, it's a bit of a pendular thing because um, some governments trying to push these more repressive laws through, and then there's a popular response against them. So maybe the following government tries and set them back. Um, and uh, now we're again on uh, on a bad position. So I think that the popular uh, the popular views and the protests that have been taking place in the last few days, I think they will have an impact and uh, at least the judges, if not the government, will, will have to set back a bit on, on, their, on the application of these norms. Okay. Yeah. And in, sorry, just one more quick one, Paco, before we, mm -hmm. before we move on. Um, we recently had elections in, in Catalonia, as we know, we spoke a bit about it last week. Mm -hmm. What have the, the local political groups, the local parties had to say about this case, Enric? Are they coming Are they coming out in support? Are they all remaining quiet until there's a coalition formed? Well, um, in this case, you can see clear differences between blocs. So all of the pro-independence parties have quickly come out to say, see, this is a Spanish, this is what the Spanish state is like. It's repressive. It doesn't allow freedom of speech. It doesn't allow democracy. So they're tying, um, they're conveniently linking their uh, political cause for independence with the the fact that you know there are rulings uh, of certain courts which are not very democratic in my point of view. So, so um, they're they're taking advantage of that. In terms of the pro-unionist parties, I'd say there are more differences there. So more right-wing parties are being more supportive of these kind of rulings and more uh, openly speaking in favor of the protection of the crown, even if that takes uh, restricting freedom of speech or freedom of, of uh, artistic creation, whereas more left-wing movements are somewhere in between, I'd say. Okay. Paco, sorry, I cut across you there a moment ago. You wanted to jump in? No, no, yeah. I was also thinking about a bit Catalonia as an example, but more in general, like, to me, I mean, first of all, it's a difficult question. No, is there is a really subtle line between freedom of expression and nowadays, certain kind of expressions which go probably across uh, the limits in a way. Uh, we, we think, for example, about you know new racist or uh, even uh, for movements for white supremacists, stuff like that. Uh, sort of new fascist movements as well, which, in my opinion, uh, shouldn't be allowed to uh, enter the public discourse. Now, repressing is not the right way, but there is a limit to me to what you know can be expressed and what it cannot. But on the other side, uh, the the is actually it doesn't seem to be in that direction that you know governments are uh, repressing this kind of uh, speech, but actually is uh, uh, the other way. Like so, it's a difficult question. But from an Italian point of view, for example, looking at Spain, uh, it's really particular how you know there are foundations like the. Fundación Francisco Franco, I've been there, for example, during my research, which is openly apologetic, uh, you know, about Francoism, and like there is not sort of a, an attention on this theme often, uh, with people who still nowadays like speak openly about, you know, Franco as a, a good dictator or this kind of uh, speech, while on the other side, sometimes like the, the repression is really big. So 
uh, I don't know. I, I find this particularly interesting when we when we speak about Spain, and uh, uh, I find there is perhaps a tendency to uh, this contrast, which is like even for police, like to be a bit more authoritarian than in other European country. I don't know if Eric, you agree with that. Um, yeah, I would agree. Well, I think that's that's the issue. I mean, the debate that we're having here, kind of more like a group of friends. Um, where, of where do you cut the line or where do you find the right balance between, you know, trying to not uh, make uh, too much of, of, uh, of an issue of, of uh, racist or, or anti-human rights discourses and where do you allow certain limits of public um, expression and freedom of expression. So, so that's obviously a debate that you have. But then if the, if the laws that regulate that are not clear enough, what you get is you get very different interpretations run by the different courts. And that's the problem because there seems to be both in courts and police, there seems to be some sort of intrinsic bias towards certain attitudes. And so they are more strict or more tolerant with certain views than with, with others. So, and that, that's actually the problem. So that will take us to, to, um, to deeper debate about the structure of the Spanish uh, judicial system and, and where do the, these judges come from and whether they've inherited certain practices from Franco's time. Um, so, so and, and the same with the police, I'd say. I mean, even though police policemen are, are generally younger, but they've inherited many practices and many learnings from that time. So um, it's, it's interesting to see how the application of the same laws and rules um, are different depending on the case. Yeah, I think you I think you've hit the nail on the head there, Enric, because like as you say, it's very difficult for people to keep their own their own beliefs, their own opinions out of making decisions. And it just so happens these people like policemen, okay, judges should be impartial. You know, the issues of judges being not being impartial is really, really serious. But in terms of policemen, let's say, it's much more likely they're gonna follow the rules, follow the, the guidelines they've been given on their side of what they believe, you know? And this is the issue. It's the, I mean, there needs to be accountability for people the whole way up the chain and, and um, a lack of impartiality causes major problems when we get into a, a discussion like this about free speech, you know, it should be, it should be pretty clear, but as you say, the laws in Spain and their interpretation, they can, they can vary greatly. So one of the fallouts we've seen over the last week you could say in in Catalonia and also here in Valencia and Madrid all across Spain have been pretty big protests uh, in response to the the case of Pablo Hassel so this leads us on to the next the biggest question of the day really which is about police brutality because we've seen police brutality in Catalonia over the last number of days we're seeing examples all across Europe and I just wanted to see what what you guys thought about that so Paco I'll start with you how, how do you see the state of police brutality in, in Europe at the moment? Yeah, so there was this, uh, uh, this is again, more of a question, I wouldn't say, uh, you know, it's an open problem. Uh, police, of course, is not the enemy, but I would say there is an increase in police brutality. So it's like, I don't think we have all the answer for this. Like it's, of course, uh, it depends. There are different cases. Uh, so it's a complicated uh, topic. But uh, I want to um, connect to a report recently made by the uh, UN saying that, uh, for example, talking about coronavirus, uh, the crisis was used to increase uh, brutality across the world. And uh, especially they were talking about 
authoritarian regimes, they used to crisis, uh, you know, repress freedom of speech. And we have seen this uh, in Europe, particularly, of course, in Hungary and Poland, we have talked about this. Now also in Slovenia, if I'm not wrong, there are some uh, major issues. But so the question could be enlarged also to democracies, like in, in a way, are we at the repair from this tendency or are we also at, at risk? Uh, and for example, uh, what's happening uh, with the ZAO, like is, is a clear demonstration. Of course, here you have from one side, you have you know, Corona rules, like and you have uh, necessities of public order and public uh, health as well, which enter into play. But on the other side, like uh, when these are used to repress, as we were saying, a, a, a manifestation, a protest, this becomes really, really problematic. Uh, uh, I think the, in Valencia, some disorders happen, if I'm not wrong, and I think Eric has more to tell us about uh, those disorders. <laughs> um, yeah, so, I mean, the, the, the question of police brutality and, and to what extent uh, the police has that role of, uh, of having to suppress protests and demonstrations. I mean, um, again, it's very hard to set the limit. And, and, uh, and I think the important issue there is, is what you were saying before, Paco. I'm sorry, Dermo what, was discussing this. So um, having the right mechanisms to, to enforce accountability for wrong decisions or for wrongdoings, whether they're organized or whether it's some individual policeman who uh, doesn't act uh, rightfully, um, then th that should be prosecuted and that should have consequences. And I think that's the most important thing because obviously um, I can, to some extent, empathize with certain situations when there are, when there's tension in the streets when you don't know whether you're going to be attacked or whether you you don't know who's inflicted the first damage and to set the the rules of the of the protest um but that, that that's always uh, something that that needs improving and we've seen that in in many protests not just in spain i mean we've seen that with general strikes in france we've seen that with student demonstrations in the uk um, and, and in Spain this week, I mean, um, there was police brutality. To, to, to my uh, to my understanding, the, the 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 how the police reacted was completely disproportionate to what the demonstration was looking like. At least in Valencia, I mean, um, I personally know, for example, the case of an MP who who was uh, hit by a policeman after the policeman invited him to leave the demonstration this way and it was just a few seconds after he invited him to leave following that specific way he was just hit from the back um so i mean that that that's not acceptable and and, and it's not acceptable just the fact that it happens but it's even worse the fact that that might not have consequences and i think that's where we should be tackling i mean in Barcelona and Madrid, we've seen some other kinds of uh, disorders. So we have seen more, more violent attitudes. And I do understand that that has to have some sort of uh, repression, especially when they're attacking uh, uh, shop windows or where they're trying to, uh, to get into, I don't know, into a bank or, or some, some you know, shoplifting activities or whatever they, they were trying to do. I do think that needs to be stopped to some extent. But again, the practices of violence and the uses of, of certain weapons is also uh, under debate. And for example, one of the demonstrators in Barcelona lost an eye because she was hit with, uh, I think it was a, a rubber projectile um, that was shot by, by a by a police. So um, 
I mean, everything needs to be revised. I think accountability is important. And I think using violence in proportionate ways is something that, that needs to be well, well defined if we want to avoid these kind of situations. Yeah, definitely. I, I think you've touched on two, two important points there. The first one being, absolutely, there needs to be a separation in the way people look at these stories. They need to remember in their mind, there's a difference between peaceful protesters and rioters, you know? No one is here defending people who go break glass windows, steal from local businesses. No one is trying to defend any of that. But those are often groups of people that end up at protests as well, and it all get mixed in together. And all of a sudden you hear of a peaceful protest where it, it resulted in riots and looting. Okay. The next point I wanted to, to get onto about the protests is about what Paco mentioned, saying because of the COVID situation, uh, it's not just lockdown restrictions that are getting tighter. We're seeing big reviews of police powers and the, the kind of force police are allowed to use. For example, this new security bill in France. So it's been passed up through the lower house. It hasn't been passed through the Senate yet, but this would allow them to prevent people from recording police. Now, we all saw back in November, there was a video of a man being brutally beaten for 15 minutes by police for not wearing a mask. Now, Macron has come out and said they will revise this section of the bill. But if you go on and you read the other sections of the bill, there are far, far more uh, limits being broadened for police. police. If this bill gets passed in France, okay, you won't be allowed to record the police. Police will be allowed to carry their guns, even in public places while they're off duty. That's a recipe for disaster. They'll be allowed to use drone cameras to to film you as, as surveillance um, as, as surveillance technique. So how do you guys view co the COVID, the pandemic, everything that's happened impacting on the way people look at defense and the way they look at their, their police forces? You know, not just here in Europe, but also as we've seen in the United States, it's become a huge, huge movement now, Black Lives Matters over the last few months. What do you guys think about the impact COVID has had on all this? I think it's somewhat worrying that um, we, you know, the, the tolerance for for restrictions in personal um, everyday everyday activities ha can lead to to more tolerance for restrictions in in personal freedoms when it comes to protest or freedom of speech or freedom of movement. So. Um, I mean, again, we need some form of that, that's like with most uh, topics where we debate here, actually, you need some sort of ethical check for the measures that are being taken. So um, it can make sense that there are restrictions of movement or, or there is more police surveillance on the streets if there is a situation of pandemic. Now, that shouldn't be an excuse for authoritarian governments to extend that to more of a general practice and to uh, convert, uh, you know, normal rule of law into a police state. So that's where we need some form of effective uh, checks and balances between so, so, uh, civil society and uh, and uh, the government in order to to prevent this kind of authoritarian attitudes. But you know, finding finding those those checks and balances is always is always hard. <laughs> yeah. And in my opinion, I mean, uh, on this, like the, what worries me a little bit is the lack of a discussion. Sometimes, you know, the media are aligning uh, with uh, sort of a, this sort of unique thought lately uh, on this. And uh, these like 
I mean, of course, like when we talk about uh, measures, like you need to respect them and they are essential for our security, but which measures are these, which like, you know, there are some measures perhaps which don't make sense and like have been applied uh, without much back, uh, you know, scientific backup, uh, while others are essential, like, but in, in all of these, like if you don't allow sort of dissent to be expressed, like you will just result with more dissent, mm -hmm. uh, which is not uh, in the public discourse, but actually is there in the country and will result in more violence. And, but going back to the police, to me, um, is like this, this thing of not filming is really alarming. If I'm not wrong, in Spain is already like that, but Henry can correct me. Yeah, no, I mean, it was also famous. And that's the worrying thing that you see that these kind of anti-democratic laws are being copied from government to government across Europe. So in Spain, it was actually uh, known as the gag law because it was trying, it tried to silence people and it tried to, again, uh, limit, for example, people from filming police uh, police activities. So again, it, it's worrying to see that, that that's being uh, extended to other European countries. Yeah, exactly. There is often this mechanism actually uh, of like a low, like, you know, spreading in various countries from one initial country where it's applied and uh, it's a mechanism uh, of the, in the past century was really often, is really often, uh, happened really often. But my point is like, for example, now if we think about the US, you know, this is of course a provocation, but like is, uh, you know, all the uh, Floyd, George Floyd uh, case and all the rest, if people were not allowed to film police, we, we wouldn't have that massive wave of protests which happened after that. And like, you know, hopefully we'll change American society, uh, will produce some good results and also contributed probably to uh, the fall of Donald Trump. So like, uh, I, I honestly, on, on this side, like uh, I don't see why police shouldn't be filmed. I, I don't see a good reason. I, there, there, might, there are for sure some, but like this seems to me a really, really worrying uh, tendency. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm not sure if you saw just a little bit on it as well. Like, obviously in America, as we all know, they can, they can record in the United States. But there was a video that came out last week of police officers that were being recorded by people they were arresting. So they started to play the Beatles to create a copyright infringement of people taking a video. You know, these are the kind of, obviously not every police, police person is like that, you know, mm -hmm. but there's dirty tactics on every side of these, of these arguments, you know, and that just honestly made, nearly made me sick seeing the police play that to try and try and trap people, you know? Um, yeah, I mean, the police brutality is not going anywhere, but we'll, we'll move on for now. Paco, you want to tell us a bit about the recovery fund before yes. we say goodbye? Yeah, so, uh, well, just a brief update, uh, um, like we was approved on the 10th of February. So uh, the, it's called the recovery and resilience uh, facility. Um, it was approved. Sounds so official. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> really, really good name. Uh, as usual, the European Union makes a, a, a you know really good name that sticks to minds and like <laughs> everyone will understand what it is. But anyway, um, so it was approved with a really big number, actually 582 uh, favorable votes with only 40 votes contraries and 69 abstentions. Uh, so like uh, this is a really interesting part because many parties which initially oppose or usually are 
uh, initially opposed the recovery fund or are usually critical of the European Union actually voted in favor of the recovery plan. We talked last week about Lega Nord, for example, which is uh, historically Eurosceptic, but actually uh, now basically uh, is in favor of recovery fund. On this, I think there was an impact a little bit of Brexit because now like with you know, the disaster of the first week of Brexit, sort of Eurosceptic position are being weaked, weaked uh, a lot. Uh, but on the other, like perhaps help us to understand the evolution that Europe, the, the, the polit politics at European level uh, is having. Uh, and uh, the fact that it's an historical moment where like actually the European Union is doing something different in a way from what has been done uh, till this moment. Uh, this is what, for example, uh, the European Commissioner for Economy, Paolo Gentiloni said uh, that they find it uh, an historical moment and it will be the largest stimulus package ever financed through the EU budget, a total of 1.8 uh, trillion uh, euros. The other interesting bit to me to discuss, uh, so the, 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 the stimulus is there, uh, is not all, uh, you know, well, basically part of it will be financed with the sort of Eurobond, like some titles which are, are like uh, in, put in the market like uh, and covered by all European countries. So it's going to be for the first time in history, European debt rather than Italian or French or Spanish debt. Um, but only part of it is going to be like that. The other part is going to be normal uh, loans, basically. Uh, the other interesting bit to me is the criteria that have been uh, applied, like the criteria uh, countries will respect, uh, will have to respect to receive the money. They will have to present a plan. They are already doing it uh, to the uh, European Parliament, European Commission. And so it will be discussed. Uh, and they need to respect certain criteria, which is, of course, green energy, but is also about a, a sort of technological transition and development and uh, youth unemployment. So tackling some of the core issues, I would say core problems of the European Union at the moment. So it's also really interesting as a way of, you know, make a more, it's still indirect, but more uh, direct influence from the European Union to the uh, choices of the single governments. So in a way, uh, hopefully is a, a step towards uh, a bit of coordination and uh, more federal management of the budget at the federal, federal level. Uh, there are still some many questions that remain there. There, uh, for example, countries will be able to veto. And the question is, is this going to be enough? Uh, because still all these criteria as often is the case will impact also the policies like, you know, perhaps certain policies, the most progressive policies as often is the case. Uh, will not be covered by the criteria set by uh, by this by the European Union, which in the end, you know, to set these criteria, you need the compromise with between the various countries. So, inevitably, you will have some countries, uh, you know, the, the so-called frugal countries, of course, uh, is what we're thinking about, who will sort of might be able to limit the the spending and the investment. Okay, Doug. Enric, anything to add on the recovery fund? 
I mean, I agree basically with what Paco was saying. I think it's important that the European institutions do give some direction for the spending. It's not just a matter of giving out money and spending on whatever you want, you know? You know, it's about, um, since we're in a moment of crisis and reconstruction needs to be designed, I think that design needs to go in line with, uh, with the, uh, you know, sustainable, uh, development in terms of you know more green industries uh, supporting public services social services health services you know all of these and then of course tackling uh, poverty and, and youth unemployment i think i think those are basic strategic lines that that need to be enforced and one last final comment i think that uh, european institutions also need to have a rethink on the model of public governance so we've seen a lot of scandal with public procurement in the uk in the last few uh, days and weeks but i think one thing that do does need reform is is debureaucratizing um, institutions and making government decision uh, government decisions actually be made in a faster way so more flexible and practical approach to, to public governance is, is needed. And I think that needs an institutional reform on the national state level, uh, but that also needs to be pushed from, uh, from the European Commission. Yeah, definitely, that is one of the main problems, in my opinion, at the European uh, level. Like we definitely, you know, again, it's a balance, it's a difficult balance between exigencies of coordinate many different countries. Uh, in my opinion, a movement towards federalization is the uh, the way to reach some fa faster uh, decision making. The other bit, uh, sorry, I forgot, which is really interesting for what we were discussing last week. Uh, so about Hungary, Hungary, uh, Poland, uh, is that the other criteria that uh, countries will have to respect is that they will have to have to respect the rule of law and uh, you, the EU fundamental values as a prerequisite for funding. So that is another bit that will be interesting to track to see if the European Union actually through this will be able to give an answer. You know, sometimes uh, economic measures are the best way to impose uh, uh, this kind of, uh, uh, the respectance of this kind of laws. So like if, uh, hopefully, of course, uh, we hope that Hungary uh, and the Poland will respect uh, the fundamental rights because like there is a constant a popular constant around that and sort of their uh, president will be forced to do that but uh, i think it's it's an interesting thing to uh, see if the european union will be able through these sort of uh, measures to uh, impose uh, these kind of rules yeah, you'd have to, I mean, you have, we have to hope this is the step finally where Hungary and Poland don't veto and we can all finally get back to planning. As you say, guys, yeah, it's a, there are certainly ways we could, they need to relook at the, the way EU funding is managed, the way it's distributed. And it is a difficult balance, but if the pandemic has brought us one thing, it's the opportunity to rethink, replan, redesign, and maybe start fresh and hopefully this recovery fund can show the the, the hopeful efficiency of a, of a federal Europe taking over the budget. All right, guys, we're going to leave it there. Enric and Paco, thanks a million. A pleasure as always. Thank you. Thank you. All right. We'll be back on Friday with the next podcast. Okay. Take care, everyone. <laughs>